You're listening to A Step Forward, episode 20. Welcome to A Step Forward, a podcast for orientation and mobility specialists. I'm your host, Cassie Maloney. Orientation and mobility specialists are changing the way that people with visual impairments view themselves, view their world, and are able to travel in the most independent way possible. Join me every week for simple how-to strategies and inspiring conversations that will help you get from where you are to where you want to be. If you're ready, we're about to rock and roll. Let's take a step forward. Have you ever thought about how people with visual impairments see themselves, see their independence, see their success, or even see their orientation and mobility classes? Wouldn't it be wonderful to just be able to drop in and get a glimpse from their perspective? Well, my friend, that is exactly what we are going to be doing today. I hope you have a little bit of time to sit and hang out with us today. If not, feel free to pause this. This one's going to be a little bit of a longer episode because we are bringing you the entire panel from our symposium this year. Now, if you were there, you know that it was amazing. We were lucky enough to bring in four panelists who are successful and they have visual impairments. So let me define that. When we talk about the word successful, we are specifically looking at people who are independent, people who have high paying jobs, people maybe who are athletes, people who are parents, people who live and work in complex areas. That was our definition of successful for this purpose. Of course, everybody who has a visual impairment, everybody who has any sort of impairment, they are going to be living up to their level of what they are able to do and what that is considered successful. But just for this panel, we wanted to pull people who lead inspirational lives and also happen to have a visual impairment. Not that they lead inspirational lives in despite of their visual impairment, but they lead inspirational lives and they also happen to have a visual impairment. Our four panelists who we were lucky enough to be able to bring on are Maria Dineglio, Adam Lynn, Jesse Lorenz, and Kevin Shanley. And they all have very inspirational stories. Our moderator, Jeremy Hill, who you know because he's been on the podcast before, he was the one asking questions. Now, before we get into this, I will let you know that there were a couple moments where in the background you'll be able to hear me give my cell phone to my son. I just forgot to mute myself. It's not a big deal, but you will be able to hear it. If you are an orientation and mobility specialist, or if you are an OT, PT, TBI, speech pathologist, if you're a parent, a caregiver, or if you have a visual impairment of yourself, I want you to listen to this episode because this one really shows what's possible for people with visual impairment. So without further ado, this one is a very long episode, so I'm going to keep this intro short and give it over to my good friend, Jeremy Hill, our moderator. First of all, I'm going to start with Maria, before I forget how to pronounce her surname, Maria Danelio, <laughs> from New York. Would you like to tell us, first of all, a little bit about yourself, your, your background, your family, and what, what, how you spend the day? Thank you. 
Okay, I am Maria and I live in New York. I am a hospital administrator for almost 25 years. Um, I work in the psychiatric department. Um, I use JAWS and uh, magnifiers to get through the job. And then I do extra activities. Um, I have played baseball. I do in tandem biking. And now I'm taking, I'm setting up some dancing classes for the visually impaired. Fantastic. And you, you, have, a, you have plenty of friends and family to go on the other end of the tandem bike? Yeah, yeah they don't let me steer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks very much, Maria. So now I'm going to go along to Adam. He's a New Yorker, Adam Lynn. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, Adam, and, uh, and uh, how you get around and what sort of interests you have? Sure, Jeremy. Um, yeah, I live in New York City. Uh, I also do some athletics. I know Maria, we, we both do kind of biking in Central Park and things like that. Um, I'm a writer and I work for a company called Elia Life Technologies, or I do community outreach for them. We've developed an alphabet that's it's similar to Braille in that you can feel it, but it looks more like the Roman alphabet. So I, I work there, that's downtown. Um, I have two daughters. And so that, that has greatly impacted my, the way I feel about o and I, I went blind in the mid eighties and I was always a cane person go, uh, for, for a long time. And then in the last uh, five years, I've used a guide dog because I found that I really needed that help with, a, with small kids in the city. So I, mm -hmm. I kind of have had both experiences. And how old are your daughters? They're uh, eight years old and six years old. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Okay, that's a great introduction. Um, and now, uh, Jesse Lorenz from, you call yourself a Coloradian, is that correct? Colorado. Um, I was born in Durango, Colorado, so down in the Four Corners. I attended both private um, uh, religious schools as well as uh, public mainstream schools, and I spent the latter part of my high school years at a State School for the Deaf and Blind. I then moved to California and went to San Francisco State, transferred and went to University of California in Berkeley. Um, after graduating from Berkeley, I got a job with Mayor Gavin Newsom, uh, processing ADA complaints, and then went on to be the CEO of the Independent Living Center that served San Francisco for eight years. Um, I decided it was like, I'm a mom to an eight-year-old, and it, it's really hard to afford to live out there. So um, I was able to get a job doing policy work with the Mayor Pete uh, Buttigieg for president uh, campaign, go Mayor Pete. Um, and I moved to Colorado with my daughter, where it's way cheaper to live. Um, Fantastic. Kind of awesome. Thank you very much, Jesse. We've got a couple of guide dog users here. And uh, now Kevin, last but not least, another New Yorker. Uh, Kevin Shanley, is that correct? Correct, yeah, Kevin Shanley. And so, yes, I do live in New York, but not in New York City. I live in the Hudson Valley, north of New York City. Um, I am associate professor and the head of the Division of Engineering Programs at the State University of New York. And um, I am, I have played beat baseball in the past as well. And I'm also the first American to participate in the sport of blind hockey. Um, I did that in Canada. And now I've worked with USA Hockey to grow the sport again across the United States. 
and I am also a father to a nine-year-old daughter, and mm -hmm. I am currently a guide dog user as of the last three years. Terrific, thank you very much. So all four of you live in different environments, uh, some right, right, right in the middle of the city, some a uh, little bit more out on the outskirts. Uh, perhaps if we go back to Maria, um, could you tell us a little bit about your particular, uh, what your O&M looks like? Because we're speaking to, I think, about 212 O&M &M, uh, specialists at the moment. What sort of ways or techniques do you use to get around in your, um, getting around in New York? Okay, I am a cane user. I mm -hmm. have always been blind, but I would say that I went through that stubborn stage where I didn't think I needed a cane, but now I won't leave my house without it. I'm not comfortable anymore. Um, I use it everywhere. Um, the thing I additionally use to my cane to help navigate around is I definitely use my phone as the GPS. And... Um, so, um, I... What, what, what made you suddenly decide, yes, I am going to use a long cane? Well, I guess I finally got at that point when I was in my mid-30s where I realized that I was just having too much hard time to get around. And I realized that I was probably not getting to the height of my independence. So right. I decided that it was... Um, didn't care what anybody thought and I was I had things to do and I was going to do it and just I think doing O&M a few times doing the rev um, um, review you know a couple of times and would only use it from time to time and then I just got more and more comfortable using it every day. So you use your um, your iPhone to get around with what, what sort of uh, favorite apps and things do you prefer on your phone? And uh, I imagine New York, I've never been there, it would be a pretty noisy sort of place. Do you use headphones or you just listen to it as you go along? Or how, how I do you just listen to it as I go around. I'll um, use Blind Square sometimes, but otherwise I'll just do um, Siri where I am to confirm. And I also have no problem, let's say, if I'm looking for a store, I'll ask someone and say, can you tell me where the store is? You know, is it? to the left or the right, just to get a little guidance. So uh -huh. I use um, multiple techniques. And you find the general public in New York very helpful for that sort of thing? You don't Sometimes, get too many tourists who point you in the wrong direction? Um, it can, but I've also noticed sometimes that GPS doesn't update quick enough, so that can put you in the wrong direction. And I, I know even in uh, the city of Brisbane and places where I am, if you're using GPS around tall buildings, can get a little bit lost too. I'm sorry, can you repeat? Because sometimes the voice. Oh, sorry, sometimes the GPS on your phone or the app, uh, GPS can get a little bit uh, uh, shadowed because you're in a, with a lot of tall buildings around you. Correct, correct. Oh, good. Okay. Um, so now crossing to Adam, if, would you mind? giving us our, the O&M community having listened today, what sort of um, O&M techniques and skills do you use on a daily basis to get around? So even though, you know, I, I, like I said, I've, I've used a guide dog for the last five years, but because I've used a cane for so long, of course, I really, I still rely on my cane and I use it 
quite often. And I was thinking about kind of the journey I took, like the O&M journey, I guess we're always like still on it like every day. Um, but I, you know, I went to a mainstream uh, public school, but I had an itinerary teacher who would come in and taught me how to use a cane. And I really struggled in high school. Like I had the cane with me all the time, but really the funny thing is, is you, you don't always realize it's like, I lacked the confidence I needed to really like go out in my neighborhood and things like that. And so after college, um, I went to Louisiana Center for the Blind, which is a National Federation of the Blind Training Center in Ruston, Louisiana, uh, where all of the O&M instructors were blind. And I, and I got an NFB cane, which is a longer, lighter cane, and was shown how to get around by blind instructors. And they literally had us having, the first day you had to walk from the apartment to the school, which was almost a mile, and you had to cross train tracks. And it was <laughs> as, as, astonishing because, I mean, the basic how to use a cane is not really very difficult. There, There is a psychological component to it. And after like maybe two days at the center, and I was there for months and months, I thought, I got this. I got this down. I mean, because I, I, I so much of what I do is similar to Maria in that, you know, I have my phone now that's in the last few years. I use Blind Square. I use Where Am I? But oftentimes you end up just asking because it's not, you know, GPS can't tell you uh, you know, that there's, a, you know, a construction site right in front of where you're trying to get, or there's, there's clearly some reason why I'm having a hard time getting across like an open square to get into a large building, something like that. Um, so, so yeah, so the, the, the basic cane skills, uh, they were not particularly difficult. I just needed the psychological capacity to do it. And other blind people really helped me in that regard. Um, kind of a side note in, in preparing for this, um, seminar I talked to so many of my blind friends and we were fascinated how many of us realized when we were young we did some kind of a martial art and that seems like kind of a funny thing to bring up but it's amazing I think it really helped me in terms of understanding my direction and the physicality of being able to walk in a straight line across a busy street and it's something I haven't heard discussed that much but I think a lot of blind people find their way to that skill uh, to help them get around Right. I actually been keeping half an eye on the chats coming through, and I, I didn't realize that um, Blind Square works inside buildings as well. That's interesting. I, I've, I've never really used it. I mean, probably it does in like a big thing like a hospital or something. I've never even tried that. That yeah. makes sense. I understand there must be beacons or so in some perhaps larger shopping malls and that sort of thing too. Do you Now, you're a regular guide dog user. Do you tend to drop back and use the cane sometimes in certain places or certain events or getting out and that sort of thing? Well, yeah, like I said, so, you know, as my kids got a little bit bigger and I started bringing them to a school that was fairly far from my house, it was down downtown in a pretty busy area, I realized that I was really struggling um, and I need, I wanted that extra level of safety crossing busy streets with the kids. I guess I thought, you know, I, I could do this on my own, but with a, with a two-year-old pulling me in the semi-wrong direction, uh, the dog really helps. And I've never regretted that for a minute because Manhattan is so crowded. I used to live in Brooklyn. that was a little more, I wouldn't call it suburban, but a little more sane than Manhattan in terms of crowds. Uh, and I yeah. could manage that with the cane fine, but the, the heavy crowds in the subway, the dog has helped me a lot. I'm, I'm totally blind. Right. Okay. That's terrific. Thank you very much. Uh, so now we're off to talk to Jesse, uh, the Coloradian, um, and you're all parents too. So I'd like to actually talk later on about um, where, where children or kids come into the, the O&M as well. But uh, 
So, so for Jesse, um, what O&M and techniques and skills do you use? And you'd say we well, use them on a regular basis or uh, is there any particular technology you, you, you really do tend to uh, prefer when you're getting about? Well, I definitely use a long white cane. Um, I am totally blind. I have uh, two, two falsies, two fake eyes. Um, and I have, I am on the wait list to get a guide dog from Guiding Eyes for the Blind. I'm really into that they train dogs okay. to, to run with people. Uh, and so I'm willing to wait for them to find me the perfect dog. I've done a couple marathons. But back to the mobility skills. Um, I have a really interesting sort of, um, I have lived in California in the urban setting for 20 years and moved here recently where they are so strange, they don't have sidewalks everywhere and there's not like humans to solicit um, assistance from. And so it's been a really different experience for me learning now being older, like moving from an urban environment to a rural environment. And a tool that I've used a ton um, is Ira, because I can just Ira. yeah turn on mm -hmm. the glasses or use the video on my phone, which usually the fidelity is better on the phone. And I can um, have them give me turn-by-turn -turn directions. I can have them give me visual information like, oh, this, the sidewalk restarts up in 30 feet. Or um, I have also found myself in places since moving here where there were uh, train tracks in surprising places, which I had to cross, which, you know, it helps to have the visual information before you just find yourself in a funny situation. So Ira and the cane, and um, also, yep. you know, dogs great too. So for those of us who have not had much experience about Ira, I, I've heard about it, but I've, I've not actually tried it or seen anyone use it myself. Um, how much notice do you have? So if you're in a, a sticky situation, like you're walking into an airport and you're trying to find where the counter is, or you're crossing a, a railway crossing, or perhaps finding the right platform, can you get it fairly instantaneously? I mean, it's, it's usually within five seconds and it really, wow. like it, it's becoming more ubiquitous as the video um, relay networks are enhanced and as we go closer to, you know, four and five G networks. Um, I personally don't find that the glasses have the best fidelity. I find that just using like the camera on my iPhone works great. And yep. it, it gives me information, um, especially now that I'm doing more like rural walking to get places uh, mm -hmm. where I can't just like grab someone. Um, yep. You know, it's just right at my fingertips. It's great. And yes, it definitely like when it, the video doesn't work, it's frustrating. But you know, that's why you have your other skills. And the people who you're talking to, they have a, a good, usually have a good way of explaining where things are and where to find things and um, well, they can an understanding, sorry, understanding of spatial skills. Yep. Yeah, and they can see where I'm at. So especially out on routes, like when I'm, when I'm going new places and, and there may or may not even be a sidewalk, let alone a person um you know i can actually they can see me on the map so it's, it's been really it's been surprisingly helpful fantastic and uh, it's just another tool of the trade really isn't it yeah lovely thank you very much um now kevin same question but i'll try and ask it a different way um what sort of <laughs> specialties or what do you call on when you're trying to get around when you're uh, getting around new york 
Yeah, so like everyone else, I, I use a little bit of everything. Um, I'm a, I have a guide dog now uh, for the past three years. I got uh, a black lab from Freedom Guide Dogs. Mm-hmm. And um, I do use him most of the time. Uh, but there are occasions where, um, you know, maybe I'm going somewhere and I don't want to have a dog with me while I'm there. Um, and I'll yep. you know, leave him at home and I'll use the cane again. <laughs> Um, and I, and I'll do that periodically just so I can kind of get more practice with the cane as well. And I'm not solely dependent on one, uh, mode of transportation. Um, like, you know, like the others, I think I, I put off learning O&M skills as long as I possibly could and (laughs) did what I could for as long as I could. And then, um, yeah, about three, four years ago, I started finding myself more and more ending up in places where uh, I didn't want to be and didn't didn't know how I got there. So that's when I said, well, maybe I should try a dog. And uh, he, he keeps me out of those situations more often than not. So, Terrific. I mean, I think, I think all of you have noted, uh, made a note or mentioned that hesitation in, in putting back O&M as long as possible. And I think I've met quite a few clients who say that. Um, you've got a bigger population over there than we do in have in Australia. Do you, do you actually meet other vision impaired people when you were younger and swap notes with them and, and, and find it more of a support or did you feel like you're pretty well out there on your own? Uh, are you directing that at me or are we going around again? Oh, sorry, Kevin. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm still with you. Okay. Yeah. So um, I found uh, since I started playing hockey uh, that, yeah. Um, we, we do a lot of that in the locker room, you know, we'll talk about, you know, Hey, I've been doing this and it's working or this isn't working for me. Does anybody have a solution for that? Does anybody know how to use this app on the phone? Um, a lot of the guys call it their therapy session, um, as we're getting dressed to go out on the ice. Um, (laughs) yeah, that's, that's where I'd uh, say we, I I swap the most amount of notes is there. Terrific. Oh, thank you very much for that. Yep. It's. It's always a task and the, the, of the O&M to sell the ideas and to suggest to people, give it a try, see what you think. You're mm. still the boss, but, but try it out. Um, now, if, if three of you are guide dog users, do you have difficulties over there in the US with um, accessing public places like we do over here in Australia for the guide dog? Or is the public pretty well educated? Perhaps we kick off with uh, Maria. Okay, can, can you repeat? Because it's so hard to hear with the chatter going on in the background. Ah, uh, sorry, you've still got that uh, chatter thing. I'm wondering what the um, guide dog access is like in the US for people, uh, whether uh, people are quite, the, the general public are well educated as to the fact you can bring a guide dog into a public place. Okay, now they just stop. Can you, I'm sorry, can you repeat it again? I'm so sorry. Sure. Yeah, no trouble. I'm just wondering, for those of you who are guide dog users, and perhaps anyone who wants to chip in and say a few words, uh, what it's like as far as guide dog access, uh, getting into public places and uh, cafes, restaurants, going to the movies, getting on a plane, train, uh, is, is it difficult? I am not a guide dog user. Oh, sorry. Yep. Um, but I have quite a few friends who are but i think it would be better to hear but i do see them have some you know issues where cabs leave them and stuff perhaps adam any comments sure jeremy um 
Yeah, it's really a it's really a mixed bag. It's funny. I I feel like I've been on a good run this past year, but the year before that, I was on a bad run. So maybe I self censor sometimes. I certainly try and avoid Uber. I take a city cab instead, um, okay. because something like that is you know cabs are not perfect, but Uber is less perfect than cabs today. Um, I've certainly had some trouble in in restaurants. Uh, strangely, I've had trouble in places like hospitals where you wouldn't expect it. Um, you know, and it all boils down to, I think there's very little education now for, you know, just kind of general um, people who are working with the public. Uh, and, and there's also the, unfortunately, in the U.S., the issue of there's a lot of uh, different kind of service animals that are kind of nebulous in what they're doing. And so that people kind of lump guide dogs in with those kind of dogs. So I can be in the supermarket or something and a, and a random dog that's supposed to be a helper dog is kind of going after my dog, which of course is very uncomfortable. Um, right, okay. So it's a similar situation to also on the other side of the world, really. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, you know, 95% of the time I'm walking around doing my business in the city, everything's great. It's just every once in a while you run into some problems. Yeah, yeah, okay. Just anything to add to that, uh, Kevin? Um, yeah, I really haven't experienced any difficulty. I, I'd say the biggest issue I've had is just trying to, yeah, everyone wants to pet the dog. So just yeah. trying to keep people to just let me, let me do what I'm doing. But sure. as far as accepting the dog, I've had, I've had no issues. As I say, I'm watching the chat questions coming through and I, there's quite a few people going back to the, the long cane who are wondering, first of all, what sort of age were you introduced to the long cane? And uh, did you um, did you find it uh, was it was it something or basically what what age were you introduced to the long cane and how was it introduced? Perhaps we kick off with Maria. Who are you asking? Sorry, Maria. Okay, I was introduced probably in my late years of high school, eighteen. Um, but as I said. Um, yeah. I was a little stubborn and got more comfortable in using it in my 30s as my vision deteriorated. And then I, I think ex for me, exposing myself to other people in the community, as um, Kevin was saying, was a big help. And comparing and um, sharing, and that's what one of the things that helped me get past the stubbornness of not wanting to use the cane. Terrific, thank you. And Adam, uh, what, what sort of age were you introduced to the long cane? So I was around 11 years old. I, I lost my sight relatively quickly. I didn't really have a huge transition period where I like could kind of be in denial. I mean, I could see well enough to get around and then I couldn't. So for me, in, a, in one way, it was a lot easier. I mean, I was totally blind. Uh, obviously, I needed a cane or I was you know, not going to be able to walk around at all. Um, I'd say the bigger the bigger problem was yeah I didn't I didn't know anyone else who was blind I went to a mainstream uh, in a high school um, and then probably like my you know I lived with my mom and my grandparents they were probably reluctant to let me go out and try things sometimes they were probably scared and I probably let some of that uh, seep in so while I always had a cane in my hand I wasn't yeah. always running out the door with it and you you had siblings brothers no. and sisters. No, it's just me. So do you? And you pretty well thought, this is the tool I want to use. Give it a go. Yeah, well, I mean, I, 
I, I mean, I certainly needed, uh, you, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't have done anything without a cane. I mean, I would have, uh, you know, been walking into poles and falling off curbs and stuff. So, yeah. um, yeah. I was always pretty, uh, you know, I didn't always like the cane, but I never, um, you know, being totally blind, it was pretty obvious that I had to have a cane and then of just over the years, what cane I carry has evolved. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And, and Jesse? Um, well, I originally went to a private uh, religious school and did not get a mobility training um, uh, until I went to middle school. However, I, they, did, they did have this lady who like gave me a cane, but they were like, oh, we don't want her to have it in the cafeteria. We don't want her to have it in the classroom. Mm. And what they lacked in services, they made up for in lots of special attention because they gave me like a one-on-one -on -one aid. But when I got to middle school, I got tons of mobility training and I loved the cane and like I never put it down since. Um, yeah, it's a really helpful tool. Terrific. I know uh, I've, I've been an O&M for around 37 years um, and I've always worked in country areas and little country schools in Australia, if they have a visually impaired uh, child, they would just say, that's okay. He doesn't, he or she doesn't need to get around with a cane because we've got the buddy system. Yeah, that that's help, exactly. help you around. And that's I used to go, no. And they, they get very good at clapping their hands and trying to use echolocation because they're just dying to find some way of getting around on their own. And then when they have to go from little school to big school, all of a sudden we get a phone call to say, can you teach this person how to get around independently? And you I, I wonder with with um, with those things whether you're just uh, dying to use the long cane where you need to use it. And I wonder why that was said that you can only use it in certain places. Was it because you were seen as, as a danger? Uh, I think it was a combination of factors. I think my parents didn't want like state involvement at that time. They didn't want somebody telling them how to do it. And they really did have a lot of people to tend to me. Um, you know, and, and when I started using a cane, it was like a duck getting on water. Like, um, and I got really intensive braille instruction too. And it just like, I mean, I really feel like it was like, I learned how to breathe um, because they did recognize that I was smart. And of course, like I still had IEPs and triannuals and tech, you know, the IQ tests and all that. But it was like, um, it, they just couldn't meet my needs in that setting. And then once I went to the public school program and got really good services, you know, I've just, I've flourished. Fantastic. Yep. So it's really a, a lot of frustration there before. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Thank you. And, and Kevin, uh, what, what age did you kick off with your, your long cane? Yeah, so I was trained in O&M with a, with a white cane uh, in middle school. And I, you know, I, uh, went through the training and then promptly put it away um, because none of the other students in my school were were using a cane so I wasn't going to use a cane um, and I took it out probably around 30 maybe early 30s uh, when my vision was getting worse and, and I was you know, I wasn't feeling as comfortable <coughs> navigating by myself and um, that's when I kind of dusted off my my uh, my cane skills and started using it on a regular basis. And what um, role did your parents or your family or your yeah the people around you use? I, I get you. Do you have any siblings, brothers or sisters yourself? I've got three uh, younger sisters. Yeah. 
Yeah, and what, where were they? Where, what was their role as you were learning how to get around with a vision impairment? Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> like any siblings, they were there to make my life more difficult so I could be stronger. Oh, that's good. It's consistent <laughs> then. That's good. <laughs> no, my, my family's always been a big help, you know, offering an arm or a shoulder, uh, anything to get around. Terrific. Well, I, I think something I'd like to ask, because um, we're all us, all of us O&Ms want to make a difference in the world. We don't want to be, we want to be um, people who make a, a make a, an assistance in your life. Um, starting with Maria, if you can hear me okay. Um, yep. Um, were there any, was there one thing or a couple of things that made that real big difference from a certain person you met who was an O&M instructor who made a real big difference to how you get about or perhaps some advice or something like that? that just, I, I might be not, putting you on the spot, but there might be something you can think of. Thing, you know. Not that I can think with definitely with an OM person specifically other than just you know, doing the re-certifications, just constantly being encouraged to do it. I think just what was a big pusher was being around other people who were very um, independent and seeing them use the cane and not letting it stop them. Right. So generally just uh, listening to you, listening to the important part. Yeah, not, and not even being told about it, just being exposed to it and just becoming comfortable with it because watching them be comfortable with it. Terrific. Okay. And Adam, is there uh, any aha moments or uh, one thing that stands out that an O&M specialist did or said that you remember? Well, and I mean, I touched on this a little bit earlier, Jeremy, but it definitely my epiphany moment came when I... Uh, after college when I went to Louisiana Center for the Blind um, because I went from, you know, the cane I'd been using when I was a kid, you know, came up to the middle of my chest. Um, you know, I'm about six feet tall. So like the, when I went to Louisiana, I got a much longer cane that comes up to my chin and it really met my stride better. I mean, I was 23 years old. I liked, I wanted to move fast. And, you know, here I was suddenly around, you know, 20, 30 people who were all walking at a normal pace uh using the the long cane uh and and feeling as if i could i didn't have to kind of step very gingerly you know that i could uh -huh. kind of stride out at a normal pace and that 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 made all the difference for me so it's um and this is always a discussion with o and m's is how long the cane should be uh, i know daniel kish is a great advocate for um, having a very a much longer cane to give you that distance and the ability to stretch out um is that uh, something you would suggest you wish you to have earlier on, that ability to have, have that sort of a tool? Definitely. I needed two things. I needed to have, because I actually got one of the longer canes when I was like 18 and then didn't use it for a while. So I needed, I needed both the cane and I needed to see people using it. Um, because, yeah, I mean, just in terms of safety, the actual physicality of, of stopping um, before, you know, before you get to a gap. Um, you know, I mean, I'm a huge advocate of a longer cane. I mean, what the slight inconvenience they have from having a longer cane is completely made up for in the safety and in just in, in feeling good about being able to walk at a better pace. Um, but yeah, I needed, I needed to, to experience other people using it, other blind people using it. Terrific. Okay. 
Uh, and Jesse, how about yourself? Any any thoughts that come to mind about someone or some some someone in the O and M world said something, and you thought, yeah, that, that that's actually that means something. Well, I have had some training since moving, and it's really different going through training as an adult, where you've kind of been doing things for twenty years, and like it's harder to change when you are getting older. Um, and I and I really feel like. Um, it's just such a good philosophy to meet people where they're at. And I do have another story about um, a mobility instructor. I'd love to hear it. Cassie did this panel. She's like, oh, these are all of our star people. So I don't know, this might take me out of star realm. But um, <laughs> when I was in high school, I used to go over to the park and ditch class. And there was a big hubbub about like whether or not I should be doing this, not only because I shouldn't be ditching class, but you have to cross the street to ditch class. And my mobility instructor, um, again, meeting me where I was at, taught me how to cross the street because he didn't want me to do it and not be safe. Um, and I've always kind of remembered that, you know, I've always remembered like that safety is first and it, and it you know, even though I was being kind of uh, brazen at the time in my behavior, it sort of taught me the importance of safety in terms of mobility. Right. That's very important, isn't it? That's a good, yeah. good story. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. You can't be reckless anymore once you have kids. That's awesome. I've just yeah. written down another, another question. If we get time, can you remember a funny moment like that in uh, in, in in your mobility? Um, and uh, Kevin, how about yourself? Um, was there a special yeah. moment where an O and M said something or did something? So um, even though I guess I felt like I didn't need it. Um, after middle school, after my initial training, I'd say that trainer made the biggest impact on my life um, because I did pay attention to everything, even though I wasn't intending on using it immediately. It's certainly all uh, come in handy since with just the different um, non-visual cues, cues, you know, like sound and, and uh, uh knowing where able to orient yourself based on where the sun is uh, and based on the time of day and um, maybe you know paying attention to where an exhaust fan is in a room so that you can kind of yeah. orient yourself with, associated with that um, all of those things um, have kind of come back and and been a big help uh, that I you know I learned early on even though I wasn't so inclined on using them so would you say you use echolocation to to a large extent listening where walls are and overhangs and that sort of thing uh not so much anymore i i use you know i, I kind of do it more properly <laughs> with the dog and the <laughs> cane and everything but yeah. um i certainly did when i was younger yes yeah it goes back to that story you know some children were wish they were using long canes but have to use all sorts of other ways yeah terrific thank you very much um so I'm just wondering, um, a question that we also have is, what does interdependence look like? So we were always talking about independence, but I think some of you touched on that. You've got the, you've got the skills to uh, grab somebody in the public if need be to get assistance. You've got the ability to read all the information around you as you get around. What, what does independence look like or interdependence? And um, who has the roles which help you or who's given you the roles which should have helped you to be independent perhaps if we start off with maria oh shoot 
<laughs> uh, I keep picking on you first, don't I? Sorry. Yeah. Um, I think I've given myself, my confidence is giving me my independence. Um, just, I hate to say it, with age does come wisdom. And not having shame to ask for help is, to me, is, very, is a very independent thing. And, um, and just being able to, I may not be a master of all this technology stuff, but I can use it enough to get through. And, um, yep. and having a great, um, of course, having support around also helps. But I think, honestly, to get to the independence, you need to get it within yourself. And that is something you 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 you, you gather as once you start to travel around on your own. Yes, and do you I find got that it the, by, you find yep yep traveling on my own, getting a little more confidence, you know, through work, starting to do more extra activity activities, um, you know, so, like okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So any, any tips there? You're touching on independence and also advocating for yourself really, aren't you? So any tips there for younger students who uh, perhaps haven't got that strength yet or that ability? Um, tips. Um, <laughs> to believe, to, I would tell them to learn to believe in themselves and to, um, it's okay to try and not always succeed at first, but try and and maybe somehow try not to make them feel so different compared to everyone else. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe surrounding younger kids with older, not necessarily older, but more diverse people who maybe are working or are going through, you know, like older to expose them to what they can do. Right. That's terrific. Thank you. That's very insightful. Um, Adam, have you got any thoughts on what independence, or as we call it sometimes, interdependence looks like for you? What independence, interdependence looks like? I'm trying to think. I'm trying to, um, yeah. when you're, uh, to answer your question you asked Maria regarding like younger kids. Mm. I, you know, I see it with my own, especially my eight, almost nine-year-old. I mean, kids are so wrapped up in being like everybody else, and it's so hard yeah. to be different. And of course, being right. blind with a cane, it's pretty different. Um, yeah. You know, once once I hit my mid twenties, I didn't care anymore. You know, I just thought this is what I am, and of course, that's been very freeing, very liberating. But I think that, like, the thing that helped me is is going to a, specifically a training center for the blind. You know, the, I remember when like twenty or twenty five of us blind people would walk into a, a restaurant, and it was liberating in two ways because a I wasn't the only blind person, so no one noticed me, and also because suddenly we were like the majority in a restaurant. It was like I didn't have to feel as if like I needed to fit in specifically in this side of the world. I'm a blind person. I use a cane or I use a dog. There's a bunch of people who are all doing this and it's really not to worry about. Um, so yeah, I mean, kind of going to what Maria said, essentially, you know, believing in yourself or, or being able to see yourself as a, as an independent blind person and not worrying that, yeah, well, 99% of society can see and I can't, but you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to do it my own way and we're going to make this work out. Sure. Um, and, ha and having young children, as you do, or family around you, how does it make them different? Do they have a different outlook on the world because they've got someone who's in the family who's 
Of course they do because, uh, you know, I mean, like my, it's funny, my younger daughter for the longest time couldn't figure out I was blind. And I've noticed that some kids pick up on it when they're two and some when they're six. I don't know what that is. But, you yeah. know, now she'll say, here, let me show you something like a piece of clothing she has or something she made. And she takes my hand and puts on it, you know, and so she's saying, look, but she's recognizing that there's a tactile element to it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I'm, you know, and it's, it's very busy in New York and I'm not shy. I hold on to their wrists like kind of a death grip sometimes. And, you know, and they want to run and stuff. And I'm like, look, I can't see you stick by me. You answer when I call you right now. And, and I'm, not always, <laughs> I'm not always that soft or politically correct. Cause I'm just like, I cannot lose you. This is important. You do what I say. Um, yeah. So uh, and, they, and they learn that fairly, they, they pick up on that pretty quickly, I suppose. Yeah, and of course they can kind of, you know, there are times when I think I know they're taking advantage of me, um, you know, climbing on something they probably shouldn't be climbing on, uh, things like that. So I've, I, I try and be as good as I can. And, and one of them knocked the remote control over in the other room the other day. And I was like, hey, who, who knocked over that remote? And they're like, how the heck did you know that was the remote? And I was like, just, you just get used to hearing, knowing what sounds are, you know, when they're, when they're sneaking around trying to be quiet. Um, yeah, I will say yeah. the thing about kids. It's funny. They've stretched me a lot. Um, you know, I lived for years in New York and I kind of had my roots and I didn't think about it. I thought I was a very good independent traveler. And I, I think I was to a certain degree, but now suddenly 9am, I find myself in a strange part of town, bringing a kid to a birthday party or dropping them off at ballet and walking around Lincoln center by myself for an hour. And man, it's really, it stretched me to uh -huh. the limit sometimes. So any, any hints, so well, you've given us a few, any hints on keeping track of where your children are or you just get very fluey? <laughs> um, I, I, I whistle a lot. I have a special whistle so that I'm not always shouting their names per se in public right. spaces. I give them this whistle and, and they come. Uh, and it's always evolving. You know, the, you know, you have to be you know, a tighter with a two, a three or four, a six year old. I mean, you know, things change and you kind of figure out where you're at, where you're at with them. And just get very tuned into it. And do they uh, give advice? Um, I, I have um, a, a young chap I teach locally, what I did do in Coffs Harbour in East Coast Australia here. And his two daughters would come and say, Dad, there was no way in the world I'd wear that shirt with those trousers. <laughs> <laughs> but my, my older daughter is definitely a fashionista, much more so than my wife. So if, if, uh, if I'm, if, if I'm going to choose something, uh, it has to get her approval. <laughs> uh, but but they do like sparkly unicorns still so i have to be cautious in taking their advice <laughs> terrific um where were we up to we asked kevin we haven't asked kevin that same question have i what does independence look like to you yeah so um you know uh, oh sorry i will ask him what was that sorry i have i have, I have asked kevin haven't i no no that's good it's tricky when you've got four people <laughs> as you were sorry i i did <laughs> echo a lot of what the others have said you know first it comes down to being comfortable in your own skin sort of and the best way for me like everyone else has said has been to just be around other blind people and that happened to me when i started playing hockey and it was like oh all right these guys are comfortable with it i guess i can be comfortable with it um, and I've always been fortunate to have people around me that are willing and able to help and, you know, uh, read things, navigate things, you know, give me a ride when I needed it. 
Um, now I rely a lot on my daughter, you know, cause she can read. And, um, I have a lot of the same issues with, you know, she wants to run up ahead of me. She wants to skip ahead of me. And it's like, nope, you cannot, that, that is not safe. You have to stay with me. Well, but dad, I'm just going to be right there. It's like, well, right there is the other side of the world as far as I'm concerned. Fantastic. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But there was one time in particular that I remember when she was first starting to read and recognize things. And we were traveling alone together and we were in a train station and I don't know, she had something that needed to be thrown away. And I said, all right, keep your eye out for a trash can. And she said, yeah, there's one right up over here. And it was crowded. So I couldn't figure yeah, out yeah. how she could possibly see a trash can. And I said, yeah. you can see a trash can? And she says, no, but there's a sign up on the wall that hmm. shows something going <laughs> into a trash can. And that was the first time I learned that there were signs that showed you a trash can. <laughs> And I said, well, you know, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and so after that, she's my travel buddy. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, that's great. Um, you're all professionals. You're all high flyers in the, as far as O&M travel and that sort of thing. What sort of impediments were there to becoming a professional or something in society that, um, that you find uh, is a barrier or, or impedes your professionalism and wanting to be professional and like, the rest of the community. Should we kick off with Maria again, seeing you at the top of the line? Oh, oh boy. Um, what were some of the impediments? Um, I think and also some, what, what, what may have been of assistance to becoming a professional? What may have been an been assistance? Um, I'm practice. being naughty now, I'm giving you questions I haven't warned you about. Um, <laughs> practice. I think just practice. It's you just need time and practice and comfortability. Okay. And um, as far as an inhibitor, I think society. I I think. I think society sometimes is a big problem because society doesn't understand enough that you can do it with a cane and how to get around and. And, you know, and it's not something that, unfortunately, all of society will be able to get educated about. Mm -hmm. and I think as, as technology improves uh, and increases its ability to assist, people don't always realize the skills that you have going on in your head as to how you get around yourself. And they put it down to the fact, oh, it's got a very clever guide or he's got a GPS system. Yeah, is that is that a fair thing to say? Technology um, definitely has helped us a lot, but I don't think necessarily that society realizes that we have that technology available to us, unless they're watching, you know, like watching you, or you know, people will see me with the phone and voiceover, and they're like, "Wow." And then if you are very good at getting around, you always get that question, come on, how much vision have you really got? Yeah, how much vision do you got? Or I get a lot of in my, where people will like want to help me cross the street, but assuming they'll assume where I'm going and will literally try to grab me and pull me in another direction. I'm like, no, I, I'm not going to the bus stop. Leave me alone. And so I where's the where's the worst where's the worst place being taken, Maria, that you didn't want to go? Oh. Hmm. Um, 
once you're on the wrong side of the road and you don't know where you are. Uh, yeah, I've actually been probably crossed like a, a parkway, which is like a mini highway. And I didn't want to be on that side. And then I had to figure, now I had to get myself back across by myself. Oh, okay. Well, thanks for that. So, so Adam, have you, have you had a little bit of a think about that as to um, what impediments or barriers or was there something that helped you to get where you are? Um, yeah, it's such an important question, Jeremy, and, and not one that I would want to give a glib answer to because it's such a challenge. No, no. Yeah, thanks. It's like the number one, the number one challenge because I think, I don't know, you're a kid, you think about what you want to be when you grow up and it's like, you don't realize that the workplace is like a it's very competitive i mean an employer is paying you to solve a problem as quickly and as efficiently as possible and then you're part of a network of other people who are who are doing the same job and your your teammate you need to be pulling your weight uh and that can be very challenging when you have something when you, you know you have a major disability um you know so you ask something is an advantage to being a professional uh, blindness yeah. being an advantage uh to me i yeah. think to myself I studied pretty hard in high school and everything because I thought, uh, otherwise I'm screwed. I mean, I'm blind. Uh, what am I going to do? I just can't kind of like, you know, jump into a job that somebody else might do. So I was always pretty aware of the fact that education could help me, uh, you know, overcome some of the challenges I face as a blind person. So in that regard, I would say it helped me, uh, at least made it clearer to me a path, you know, paths that I could take. Mm -hmm. um, you also have to be an advocate for yourself at a pretty young age, which is something that's pretty helpful in, in life. I mean, I've worked for big companies. I've, I've started my own company. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, the, to be flexible and to, and to figure out where your, where your strengths lie and, and where you have problems and trying to maximize your strengths. I think you know, that's important for anyone, but especially someone with a serious disability. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. you always have to be pretty cognizant of that. So you would have talked to um, employment counsellors or uh, sighted people and, and they would, what sort of ideas would they come up initially when you were very young as to the sort of things that, that Adam could do? <laughs> I, remember when I, first, I remember when I first went blind, a woman from the state came and told my mom that I was going to learn to tune pianos and she got turned out pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> and, and, my my sense of tone is not that good, so I probably wouldn't have been that good at that job, blind or not. Um, yeah, it's challenging. Like like Maria was saying, I mean, technology is great; it's super helpful. It can also be very frustrating at times. I mean, you know, you have you have a piece of software that works for you one day, and the next day, you know, the firm changes the security, and suddenly your computer doesn't work. Things like that happen a ton. Um, so the more integrated the software is, the better. Uh, there are still people, I meet adults who don't know that I can do email. I have friends, I think, who don't know that I can do email that I've probably known for years. Um, so it's, it is amazing the level of, of what people do or do not know or expect from, from people with disabilities. So we, we always so have people, to be people who are young, People who are young and vision impaired really need to talk to people like, you know, the panel we have today, don't they, about the sort of things of what you need and what you can do. Yeah, I think fortunately, you know, younger people have, I mean, if I, I wish that I had had email and stuff in college that came out just as I was finishing school, you know, things like that would have been really helpful. I mean, obviously the internet and, uh, and email and text and everything being accessible uh, to blind people 
makes younger people like much more integrated with their peers than than I was at my age. Sure, sure. Thank, that's terrifically insightful. Thanks, Adam. Uh, and now, Jesse, I, I think I might have skipped you when I was talking about interdependence. So I might correct you if I'm wrong. But I can answer both questions at once. I thought you could. I am prepared. Um, and I have been trained in, in this type of... Uh, you you make being anchorman very easy. Thank you. Yes. So, um, in terms of challenges, I think that, you know, there is still a lot of implicit bias against blind people in the workplace, but in the world in general. Personally, I think that contacts are everything. And I started keeping a, an Excel spreadsheet back, like, um, my first year in college and I still have the same spreadsheet and I, I can like write down the person's contact info, how I met them and it's helped like immeasurably in terms of that concept of who you know is much more important than what you know. Um, and then in terms of interdependence, I mean, you know, I think it's a, it's a, it's an interesting bag when you're a parent. It takes a village to raise a kid. I think mm. Hillary Clinton said that, or someone, she wrote a book with that title. And it's super true, but once you become a parent, the membership in that village becomes, for me, a lot more exclusive. Um, it's not just about somebody who can come and fix a leaky faucet or help with a house project, but it's about people who are going to have, like, my kids back in my back. My kid fell off her bike and got hurt and then was afraid to get back on. And mm -hmm. I know there's like some super awesome blind people who are bicyclists. I'm not one of them. Um, so I asked one of my sighted friends who's a biker or a, a bicyclist to mm -hmm. help her. Um, not because, you know, because that's not something that I could give her, you know? And I think that um, as mm -hmm. you go along in life, you get the confidence both ways. You know, I, I am really like badass and can do everything. Um, and I don't, I really try not to parentify my kid so that she's having to support me in doing blindness tasks that I can do for myself. Um, and at the same time, there's stuff that like I can't do. Um, and I just, I feel really blessed to have like, it, it's because especially since I just moved the small group of people around me um, and the larger group that have held me throughout my life. How do you go with the other months when you, you meet, when the kids meet and they play, have play dates and that sort of thing? How, how, does, that, how does that interaction go? Um, I mean, my kids are ridiculously charming, so that, doesn't, that definitely helps. Yeah. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, there, I think sometimes, like, moms are just like everyone else. Like, blind parents, isn't that kind of an oxymoron or there's some misgivings? But then, <laughs> you know she's uh, it works out it works out sometimes it takes a little bit of time sometimes it takes a little bit of awkwardness sometimes it means that i have to smile through the awkwardness you know uh, um, but it's what you do terrific thank you very much jesse uh, now kevin i've got a couple of questions for you what what sort of barriers or what what sort of assistance have you had to become where you are a professional and i'd also like to know fairly quickly if you could, the skills of playing blind hockey. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'd say growing up in the 80s and 90s, the biggest um, impediment to being a professional was access to printed material. You know, at that time it was enlarged print and magnifiers and you had to have some form of usable vision uh, or learn braille. Um, 
since the turn of the century and things started to go uh, more digital, um, you know, the technology with the computer and with the phone, things have become much more accessible. Um, yep. Yeah, of course, the technology doesn't always work and that's frustrating, but you know, that's one or two days a month as opposed to every day of the year, you know, every other True. day I have access to it. So that's, that's not a problem. Um, blind hockey requires all of the same skills as sighted hockey. Um, you know, it's, it's played on ice five on five with a goalie on each team. Um, yep. we try to use the vision that everyone on the ice has. So, um, higher sighted, um, so everyone, is meant to be uh, legally blind, so 10% vision or less. And uh, those players with, you know, the 5 to 10% vision range, they tend to play forward and, and you know, mm -hmm. navigate more of the ice and get the puck when it stops because the puck doesn't make noise when it stops moving. That's one of the, the biggest flaws in the uh. sport right now. Um, the lower-sighted players, they tend to stay back and play defense. And then the lowest vision, uh, you know, no vision to light perception play uh, goaltender uh, so they don't have to navigate the ice so there's a grading a grading as to where you are with your vision yeah essentially you know we just try to uh try to use what's available um, it's, i think it, it, it was I, I think adam was talking about that that nice or uh, comforting situation when you're the you're the um one of many uh versus a smaller group you get to yeah. play sighted people who have put on blindfolds sometimes? We do that, yes. We, we do that sometimes. And it, it's using the vision that's available is a different philosophy from other blind sports like beat baseball where um, everyone is blindfolded to level the playing field. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've intentionally taken a different approach to try to promote more team play. And it's, it's sort of a different experience for most blind people where on beat baseball, okay, you're, you're on a team, but really you're performing as an individual. Whereas um, in blind hockey, you're forced to work as you know a five person unit where everyone's doing what they are able. And, and you are, I understand if I got it right, an associate professor in engineering. How, how, do, you, right. how do you get around that fantastic profession with a vision impairment? Um, well, you know, it's funny, I, I was actually just talking to someone the other night and I said, you know, it's, it's funny the way life works out because I, you know, I have the skills and ability to do this, but I, I can't go to McDonald's and run the cash register. Um, <laughs> I, um, I always liked math and science and um, like Adam was saying, I, I always took my education seriously because I knew it meant more to me than everyone else. And yep. I knew that I had to prove myself more than everyone else around. I knew I was going to have to work harder. And um, I just kind of put my head down and got to work and didn't really look up again until I was, you know, I was, I had gone through all the education I could go through. And um, I thought, and, and I did work in industry for a while. Um, I worked for Rolls Royce for four and a half years. Okay. What were we doing there? Um, I was designing intake and exhaust systems for um, gas turbine engines. Um, wow. Some military, some civilian applications. And I just didn't enjoy the corporate life. Um, I had been in school for a long time and, uh, and I enjoyed that kind of lifestyle. So that's where I, uh, that's where I migrated back to. That's terrific. 
Um, I'm going to call on our chief anchor person, Cassie, because I've completely lost track of the time. Um, if we'd like to perhaps open it up for more questions, or if any of you have anything in particular that you feel like we've not mentioned or talked about, um, I can ask perhaps, does Maria have anything to add before we perhaps pass over to the, the general audience of 204 O&M specialists? Hey, before you do that, we have 10 minutes left. Oh, I thought, we, I thought we were running a bit short. Okay. Yeah. Um, so they might open it up if that's okay too. I can either read a few questions from the, uh, I have been keeping an eye on the chat, or if there's anybody who'd like to open their mic and um, ask a question that we feel like we haven't covered, would that be okay, Cassie? Yeah, that's fine. If you open your mic, uh, actually let me let you do that. Um, just make sure you say your name and then address the person that you are talking to. Sometimes there's like an overlap. So if you hear somebody else doing it, just pause and, and we've only, to do it. We've only got 10 minutes, so we'll keep it short and sweet. Anybody out there in the, the community of 204 people? You guys can also write it in the chat. Jeremy's been doing a great job keeping track and making them applicable to the person in the question asked. Hi there, it's Cynthia Bartlett from Northeastern Ontario, Canada. Hi, Cynthia. Hi. Um, I'm just curious. I put up a silly question, but I, th I think it's just sort of fun and light. But um, who still hears their first O&M instructor's voice in their head when they're navigating? <laughs> <laughs> well, you've all got your mics open, so anyone? Yeah. I, I, I remember him saying, never step out of the street without sweeping your can so you don't walk into a pole. And I think that every day I hear his voice and I don't step into a oh, pole, please step into a pole. I used to say, uh, until it used to come back to me from children, never be seen where your cane hasn't been. And they used to be saying, they'd be singing it along as they walked along the footpath. I thought, I've got to change the one. <laughs> Anyone else remember the, the ghostly sound of their O&M specialist in the top of their head? I remember, oh. he, I remember he told me, um, always cross the street at the beginning of a cycle. You don't want to get caught running across in the middle. Uh-huh. Only Any now, other? I'm traveling yeah. in the snow. Now that I'm traveling in the snow, I'm, I'm definitely remembering my O&Mers from my childhood. I've never taught someone how to get around in the snow. Hey, it's worth teaching. <laughs> what, what's it all about? Well, at least you can see your cane trails. <laughs> <laughs> we do have a question in the chat that asks, what should O&Ms do less of? Mm, good question. Okay, it sounds like we're getting everything spot on then, doesn't it? <laughs> they don't want to offend us is what it is. <laughs> They're just being nice. <laughs> I, I, I wonder about when, when things, um, just as a bit of a lead on here, I had a, a young chap I was teaching once and he broke his cane during the Christmas holidays when I was away. And he'd found an old car aerial in his dad's garage. And he, being inventive like uh, like like you four, he said, um, "I've just found this 
aerial and um, it's telescopic and I just tap myself around and I, I took me quite a while to get that area off him to give him a regular cane. <laughs> uh, so it looks like we have two more, a few more questions. There's one from Michael that asks, does anyone still get instruction in new environments? I do do a review every couple of years. Okay. Just to go over the basic um, skills because sometimes you get a little too comfortable. So I, I, I do end up doing a review since I'm only a cane user, probably every five or six years. Okay, yeah. I don't, I don't get an official O&M, but there are times when I know I'm going to have to go someplace that's pretty outside my my daily purview that I'll, I'll have some, a sighted friend go and give me a walkthrough. Yeah, I've, I've moved quite a bit, lived in five different states from coast to coast, and I usually get a, you know, a local mm -hmm. O&M training when I, when I move in. I just got a different question here, which I think is very important. A couple of people have asked it. Now that technology in modern society is increasing and there's a, 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 better, a better choice of things to use, where do you see um, Braille instruction going with technology booming like it is? Uh, can I go first? Yeah. Okay, I think that um, Braille is actually having an evolution because the invention of, of the electronic Braille display brings books into the hands of people without actually having to go print a book. Um, and it allows for, for coding and, um, you know, I know that there's lots of people who think Braille is dead. I'm not among them. And I think that the, the technology is, is a big part of why you'll see Braille have a revival. And also, I'm going to have to jump off in a few minutes because I have to go to okay. the recital. That's fair enough. Well, uh, take this opportunity to thank you very, very much, Jesse, for your um, assistance today. I think uh, I, I do love talking to people, but I think today talking to four people on the other side of the world has been absolute highlights of my year. And uh, I really enjoyed talking to you all. It's been so easy to talk to. And I hope everybody in the, the group who's been listening, the, the, the participants have enjoyed um, your answers. I think they've, you're all, um, extremely innovative and uh, a real model to other people and I, I appreciate your time and I appreciate your, your thoughtfulness and that's been very much um, enjoyed by I know by lots of people lots of comments coming through at the moment so thank you very much well there you have it I hope that you really enjoyed this episode with our panelists and our moderator Jeremy Hill I want to thank each of them again so much for sharing this information and for you I hope that you're able to take this run with it gather some inspiration and really use it to help propel you and your students as you all take a step forward until next week I will be just hanging out on Instagram at Cassie Maloney. You can also leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or anywhere that you listen to this podcast, and we would really appreciate it. I'll talk to you soon.